0: Welcome to the Jam Session. This is your host, John Landis. The Jam Session Radio Hour this is something that we appreciate that WLIW allows us to do and has for years and our typical format as you know has been a live jam that we have recorded in various venues over the years right now we're in the middle of a kind of a difficult virus period with COVID-19 and that's going to go on for a while and hopefully if we're all wearing masks and distancing and doing the right things that will calm down with the advent of a vaccine but in the meantime we are making music and making uh, and bringing you inter- interesting information. We're shifting gears a little bit, uh, as we did uh, the last two weeks uh, in October, where we brought you an interview of Ashley Kahn and Joel Chris. And uh, tonight we want to begin to bring to you some interviews. Um, that NYU has done, the Steinhardt School has done, in particular Dave Schroeder, who's the head of that school. He's done them over the years with various jazz musicians. They're, they're on YouTube, you can grab them on YouTube. This one was with John McLaughlin, um, who is uh, just a real mensch uh, in the music business and in the jazz in the jazz uh, as a jazz musician. A really grateful, appreciative guy who is very thoughtful. About what he's done and who has brought spirit into his music and into his life over the years, which is a fascinating subject in and of itself. I'm not going to talk much about him uh, because I want you guys to be able to enjoy the interview and learn what you can from John McLaughlin's interview with him. I just want to say again, this was brought to you, this is put together by the NYU Steinhardt School and through their good auspices and those of Joel Chris, who's a good friend of Dave Schroeder's, they're allow us, uh, allowing us to use these. So we're going to go right to it, of uh, the interview of Dave Schroeder um, as we've edited with John McLaughlin.
1: Welcome to the NYU Steinhardt Jazz Interview Series and today we have the legendary, the great guitarist, composer, band leader, John McLaughlin. John, thank you so Thanks, much Dave. for coming
2: today. I'm, sorry, but I'm not dead yet. No, dead? I'm not a legend yet. <laughs> well, we think you're a thank <laughs> you're you a You're very sweet. Thank you.
1: Um, I want to talk to you about uh, your life, your career. And uh, really, I want to make this about uh, the musicians who will watch this. And because they're all looking for a path, a career path, opportunities. and. Y- you know, from looking at your career, from me researching your career, it seems like you've lived many lives. You've, li- you've, you came from... No,
2: uh, well, I'm getting old, Dave.
1: Eh? <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, you came from England, you were uh, initiated with like the, the, the blues, the uh, yeah. American blues that came over, <coughs> but then you also heard Django Reinhardt, which I clearly hear in your playing as well. Uh, Let's start there, because I, I think, you know, just from me uh, looking randomly at your life, you could have had another path if you wouldn't have maybe found jazz.
2: Maybe, yeah, I think we should start a little before that because, because I studied piano, classical piano, before I, I took up the guitar. And uh, really, it, I, I owe it all to my mother, who was an amateur violinist mm-hmm. and loved music dearly. She was in an amateur orchestra, so. So I grew up with classical music constantly. So that that really marked me, and uh, um, I mean, you can see the effects later on in in my life with with the different projects that I I got involved with. With with specifically the the two pieces for guitar and orchestra, Mm -hmm. because classical music is—I still listen to classical music. It's it's so beautiful. I mean, some. Great composers, and I think jazz has an enormous debt to classical music because the harmony that, that we use in jazz really came from the European composers. Was, and there subsequently anything, the was there anything specifically
1: that you listened to in classical music that transcended into uh, like the harmonies? Was there composers?
2: Yeah, I, uh, I mean, any of the of the. I mean, the big, the big <clears throat> event for me musically was was um, was when I heard Herbie for the first time,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, Herbie and Bill Evans and, and you know these two steeped in, in the, the, the French impressionist music, whether it's Satie or, Ravel and WC you see Ravel? I mean, the the harmonies that that jazz subsequently became founded on or mm-hmm. uh, derived directly from from these these uh, composers, and then of course you have um, when when McCoy came on the scene and, and you could hear his, uh, if I dare say, Bartokian influence. You know, mm-hmm. especially with these quarter harmonies that, that Bartok was so fond of. Um, so I think jazz has got enormous debt to classical music. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think in these, these days, classical music has its own debt towards jazz now, I think. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the, the impact of, of, of growing up with, with a, a mother who was a classical player um, just had a lasting impact on me. You know. OK, by the time I was 11, the guitar came in, thanks to my older brothers. I'm the youngest of five mm-hmm. kids. and um <coughs> Fortunately, they were uh, university students and uh, we're going back here toward, say, 1953, 52, 53, when the blues movement, which you spoke about before, right. um, it hit Britain, I mean, big time. Did you see any of those
1: blues guys when they came over, like Howling oh, yeah. Wolf? Or
2: no, I saw, I saw Bill Brunzi. Oh, wow. Wonderful. And then Muddy, mm-hmm. yeah, unbelievable, amazing. Muddy Waters just really had a powerful impact on me. And I was really young, I mean, don't forget this, I, I'm coming out of this classical thing, and uh, because of my brothers got bored with the guitar, it ended up in my hands, and I became totally enamored with the guitar. I just loved it, and I stopped playing piano immediately. And because of my brothers, were at university and uh, affected by this blues boom that was sweeping the UK, they were bringing home the blues records, guitar records. So from 11 years old, I was exposed to the most beautiful, radical, different kind of music. You can you imagine just growing up with classic music, all of a sudden you hear How on the Wolf or Bill Bruford or Muddy Waters. But early Muddy Waters, when Muddy Mur- 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 was playing acoustic guitar yeah. with Little Walter on, on harmonica, and subsequently, Otis to span on, on on the piano, but, but he had a he had an acoustic trio that, that was just dynamite, you know. I just was crazy about this music. It was a revelation for me, Dave.
1: Was he tuning his guitar in what they called the Spanish style at that time, where you'd use the slide? I guess it. was Yeah, he was. he was. He yeah. was using the
2: slide. I didn't even know what it was. Yeah. I had no idea how he was doing what he was doing, but no, and Big Bill brunzi mm-hmm. he he was used regular thing but he had he had this he had this independence in his right hand where he'd keep the beat going on the bass strings then he'd be playing melodies and stuff on the, on the upper strings and singing at the same time mm-hmm. you know. for Muddy it was a, was, was a whole other thing um, but it was beautiful which later we all saw of course when Jimmy came out because Jimmy's singing was directly taken out of Marty's mm-hmm.
1: book. So did you try to sing as well?
2: Uh, yeah, I tried, it was hopeless, <laughs> hopeless. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs>
1: could have been a star. So how, how did your, your uh, trajectory switch out, away from maybe all the guys that you were hanging out with or eventually played with uh, that were in, into the, the rock, the rock and roll thing? Was it because of guys like Django?
2: You know, uh, this is this is before rock and roll. Yes. Yeah. You know, right. I'm up there, Dave. You know. <laughs> um, so for me, I mean, if you're looking at it from a chronological point of view, out of the classical, it was straight into the Mississippi blues, mm-hmm. directly. I mean, and I was just swimming in it, in that Mississippi, and it was just beautiful. And of course, you know, the impact stayed with me, but. Then uh, gradually, as, as, as my brother, my older brothers who, actually my debt to them is enormous, as, as well as my mom, they were bringing home records of Django Reinhardt, for example, and flamenco mm-hmm. on all guitar. Because they, they saw right away, because they, they, they played the guitar for six months and they'd just gotten bored, and they saw me, and I was taking the guitar to bed, you know, and I was hugging that guitar day and night, and so they were really happy about that, so they were very encouraging, and they were bringing home many records, as many records as they could afford, uh, concerning guitar, and so and I was exposed in kind of rapid succession chronologically, from the blues to, first was flamenco, the... Very powerful impact on me. And then Django, and uh, eventually um, Miles, going through Dizzy and Bird with the Bebop, mm-hmm. of course.
1: And all these records were readily available to you?
2: Well, they were available to them, to my <laughs> brothers, you know. Brothers.
1: Yeah. So they were in record shops at that time, in England. Oh, the record,
2: Yeah, yeah. in mean, the record shop. Was, that was, it was a haven, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yes. You grew up with record mm-hmm. stores. Hey, you go there and then you know you try the record and you, you you're with your friends. I mean, this way you could hang out and, and listen. I know it's gone. Isn't it sad? Is sad. Yeah, you know, I miss it. But well. you know, life goes on. But uh, the the so you can see from a, from a musical point of view that I was bombarded with with a number of cultural musical cultures. that that culminated in in Miles Mm -hmm. and Train and, you know. Well, to go back to Django
1: for one moment, I was watching a video clip of you on the Johnny Carson Tonight Show playing Cherokee. (laughs) Faster than I'd ever heard it.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the rehearsal was not that fast, but that's Eddie Shaughnessy. (laughs) What a drummer. And that was a great band, the Doc Severinsen Band. I know, because in, in the rehearsal, uh, Doc said, you know, well, what tempo you want to play? I said, well, you can play it up tempo. Okay, so we, we played it up tempo. It was nice. And then <laughs> on the, the live show, <laughs> I mean, Eddie Shaughnessy kicked in the tempo. And I'm thinking, what? <laughs> what am I going to do here, <laughs> you know? But it's like, you know, you, f- you do or you die, yes. you know, on live TV. so. Got to just go well, for it, you, you know. Die. It was, was it far was out. Great. Yeah, it was, great. it was. It was a far out experience. You know, but Django, of course, he had this beautiful fa- facility. Yeah, it was wonderful, and he had it on two fingers. Did you try to play with the two finger technique like him? No. Hmm. No. No, I never tried. I, I mean, I couldn't even do it with five, ten, fifteen. <laughs> what he does with the two, Django yeah, was a phenomenon. <laughs>
0: listening to WLIW-FM, 88.3 in Southampton, New York, also WLIW.org slash radio. This is John Landis, your host. This is the Jam Session Radio Hour. And tonight we're listening to an interview by Dave Schroeder of NYU Steinhardt School with John McLaughlin that was done towards the end of 2016. He was just phenomenal. You didn't
1: get a chance to hear him live. No,
2: no, no, no. Not that old, (laughs) Dave. He would
1: have passed in the 50s, I think, right?
2: yeah but I was really young yeah, that's true you know that's true
1: um, the thing that 's sketchy about uh, what i couldn 't find out was you're in England, and then Tony Williams calls you to come and play in his band
2: oh this is this is much later
1: yeah well i, I well this is what i don't understand because i don't see how you connected with him, and maybe there's a thread uh. Was that the, well, first the thread time came to the end? The US? thread,
2: it really, in the end, is down to love, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. like it's, it's, love is everything. And if, you know, whatever you love, then that will, that will this kind of a mutual attraction between those things. And so, if could, you know, I have to come back to Miles. And there's one point I, I have to mention that um, relates to a track. On an album he made, I think it was in '58. Um, what's the name of the album? The name of the track was "Blues for Pablo." Oh, that with the would Gil have been, Evans big band. Yeah, small big band. And
1: miles and Ahead. Uh, mile, miles, yes. Uh, sketches of Spain. No, Miles, miles ahead. ahead.
2: Yeah, and "Blues for Pablo." Um, so '58. I would be 16,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I was already, I wanted to be a flamenco guitar player, mm-hmm. actually, but I was living in this little town way up in the northeast of England, just, just south of Scotland, you know. I mean, you know, you know what's flamenco, <laughs> you know? So mm-hmm. was, that was out, and, and to play flamenco, you really needed a teacher, and, which was impossible, impossible dream.
1: Did you know that dance was connected to flamenco at the time? That who? That dancing was connected to flamenco at the time or you just heard the records?
2: I heard the guitar player, Dave, you know, and the singer, of course, but it was the guitar playing. I'm a guitar player. They were playing my instrument, playing it in such beautiful ways. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's a beautiful system and beautiful culture, the flamenco culture, the Hispanic culture. And uh, so much so, I used to skip school at the end of every month and hitchhike down to Manchester where I had one of my older brothers was was at university because he'd sneak me into a pub where there was a real flamenco guitar player, Pepe Martinez. And uh, and I used to sit and watch this guy. I saw him three or four times. I got into trouble at school, of course, but I didn't care anyway. I just just wanted to play guitar. But that (sighs) was... um, Relates directly to when I heard this blues for Pablo because I realized that um, That I mean you you look and this is fusion music Because miles anyway always played the blues He'd be playing the standard. He's still playing the blues, but all of a sudden you hear this beautiful Hispanic wave and tone and atmosphere coming because miles loved the Hispanic thing Mm -hmm. I mean you could hear it and it's playing and that record that track in particular was, uh, I think, a classic example of fusion, early fusion music, fusion jazz, mm-hmm. if you want.
1: So what happened to your
2: uh, flamenco career? It, it died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because something yeah. else came I along. got caught by jazz. Yeah. I got caught by jazz. I got caught by Miles. And um, to relate to, to your, your previous question, um, I would get every record. I, I, I mean, when Miles' came out, it came out subsequently after the the Miles Ahead and the Sketches of Spain, and with Coltrane, Cannonball, and um, Red Garland, Philly Joe, Paul Chambers. What a what a sex set! What now, a sex death. Did you
1: see those guys? Did they travel to Europe? You mm-hmm. didn't have a chance to see them live.
2: No, not Coltrane. I saw yeah. Miles live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With but later but with not Wayne, not
1: that classic group.
2: But um, I followed the careers from that point. I mean, look, that was 58, 59, because Kind of Blue came out in fifty-nine, mm-hmm. which was another mind-blowing revelation, because that was Bill and Bill. Because don't forget, I studied piano, and I heard Bill for the first time on. on on the kind of blue album, I mean, it's just the definitive kind of piano playing, jazz piano playing, and uh, so I followed the, all of them really from from that point until Miles. He had the quintet. Cannonball went off on his own with his mm-hmm. brother, and then uh, and Miles uh, he had the quintet with with Coltrane, and they made some there's some great records of that quintet around. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the classic story yes. Train, playing the long solos, you know. I'm sure you know the one that Jimmy Cobb tells about. And so, of course, through every evolution of Miles, I, I followed him. I followed them all. And uh, <clears throat> in '65, of course, another, another pivotal year for me was *The Love Supreme*, mm-hmm. that, because that affected me in, in different ways. But also, the Miles in Europe. But Tony was on. Mm -hmm. He would be 18, I think, around that time. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe Tony. It was just too much. He was perfect. Mm -hmm. And what he did to Miles, because you know how cool Miles was prior to that? All those records in the late 50s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was like kind of slowly burning. And Tony joined the band. He he caught fire, Miles was on fire. I mean, you listen to those records and that's Tony. And of course, subsequently when I got to know Miles and I I knew, I mean, he loved Tony to death. He loved him. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, when I came to join Tony, Miles wasn't happy because he was losing Tony. He didn't want to lose Tony. But those recordings, you know, were, were amazing. So we're looking at 65. But I should just interject a little something here because uh, thinking about my life as a musician um, is relevant to my life as a seeker, too. Mm -hmm. Because this, um, in fact, there are two aspects to my life, as I see, kind of threads. And one is, one is um, particularly from the 60s, mid 60s, when uh, we all started to drop acid and uh, ask the great existential questions of life, which is what acid will do to you. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And so to figure out, is growing up in a completely agnostic family but with uh, a lot of discussions going on about the existence of God and what is God anyway and what's this universe? What is this unbelievable universe we're living in? Mm-hmm. Infinite and eternal? And here we are just, you know, for a few years and then disappear. I mean, what is the whole meaning of it all, mm-hmm. you know? And so these questions became important uh, to me, as to a lot of people at that period. And, um, And the search for meaning was directly related to my musical development because I felt already at that point that that you can play a lot of notes, but the thing is, is what about the inner life that you have? Uh And I had this undeniable conviction that that I had to have a richer inner life. If I had a richer inner life, then I felt that my music would be richer as a consequence. And so the impact of Love Supreme was really pivotal for me when that album came out, in spite of the fact that I had no idea what he was playing. And I'd been listening to him for seven years Mm -hmm. with the Miles albums. And then, of course, with his own albums, Giant Steps and, and, and The Great Ones, and Tell Love Supreme. And it took a year of listening on a daily basis to Love Supreme for me to finally hear what he was doing musically. But I knew it was related to what this, he wrote on the the rear side, this beautiful poem, poem prayer, was. whatever you want to call yeah. it, this was, this, this was, an expression of a very profound degree of spiritual awareness and beautiful and elegant and eloquent, which is mm-hmm. the words he, he, he sought in his words, but it was, the, it was the characteristics he sought in his music too.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, and so that was uh, tremendously encouraging for me to get this record and read the poem and then try to figure out what he was doing. <laughs>
0: A long time. You're listening to WLIW FM 88.3 in Southampton. That's also wliw.org/slash radio. We appreciate the opportunity to bring you the jam session radio hour on WLIW 88.3. You're listening to an interview that was done in 2016 on YouTube with Dave Schroeder interviewing John McLaughlin, which we have edited, and we appreciate uh, NYU and Dave Schroeder allowing us to do this.
1: Well, how did you uh, take that information and use it for yourself?
2: Well, uh, after I dropped acids enough, I stopped, you know, because mm-hmm. it's just, anyways, not addictive or anything, and I started meditating mm-hmm. and, uh, because I had to figure out what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. when uh, you're a young 20-year-old, you know, and you're trying to find your, finding your way in music is hard, especially in jazz music because you've got to improvise. And when you improvising, what are you going to say? Mm-hmm. What are you going to talk about and there's only one thing we can speak about when we improvise is the story of our life, mm-hmm. how we relate to ourselves to our instrument to the music to our comrades to our to to the universe itself it's all it 's all about how we do it and how and the, the, how deeply we feel about it now the interesting
1: thing is um, if you would have discovered maybe been 10 years older and you would have grown up in a different time because in the 1960s mid 60s this was a lot of people were looking towards India for meditation of course things me if too you would have been if you would have been 10 years older you would have had a career 10 years earlier you might have become a different person
2: I certainly would have
1: yeah so you were placed in time at a specific point
2: yeah you think yeah. that's uh, a lot Providence of us, were, or uh, all, all, all us hippies, Dave. <laughs> for all of that time, it was an amazing decade. The so 60s. who helped you through that? I know you had the musicians, the you music, had the, musicians, the albums.
1: But you also had uh, your spiritual leaders, uh, Sri Chimnoy. Oh yeah, subsequently.
2: I mean, but even before before I left the UK, um, I saw. You know, I started meditating. I, I joined a school. Of meditation, even though the, the, the I didn't find it very deep. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, the, 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 there's always something you can take out of it, and, and I took out the the fact that that to sit down and watch what goes on in your mind is a very significant activity. Instead of a kind of you know being focused on the exterior mm-hmm. is what is going on in the interior you know? and when you do this over, over a period of time then you really start to figure out because all kinds of stuff comes out of your subconscious when you, when you meditate and you start to see who, more who you are, what you are now, that's uh, all. And that's, uh, but that's very important knowledge. That is I, I mean, it's important to me. It was important to me and continues to be important to me since I meditate anyway. I still meditate.
1: It, I, I want you to unpack this for me because uh, there's a different paradigms for people being musicians and, uh, and why they're musicians. Some of them, they're just practitioners. They're just worker bees. Yeah, I know. Go and play Broadway, whatever, <coughs> and play... Uh, third violin on cats for 30 years. And uh, I've been the uh, Right, so how how did where did it come from you? Was it the music hit you that that's significantly that you said there has to be more and I'm going to find it?
2: Well, let me put it in, in, in a, very briefly in an anecdote because <coughs> as I mentioned earlier while we were chatting, I, I, was, I became a member of the Ray Ellington Quartet which had the hardest guitar book in the world Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a monster, it was a monster. By the time I left that, that gig, uh, I was reading anything. And and so I, got, I started to get called for, for, for sessions, I mean, it's just pop, music. Mm-hmm. But from being, you know, a struggling, starving <laughs> guitar player, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, I had money in my pocket, you know. Even though the music was, was mainly rubbish, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and it was a very nice feeling to have some money in my pocket. I'll tell you, it was very nice. And I did it for, I would say, 15 months. And I was doing other things on the side. I was playing with, with uh, you know, I put on my own group together. And I was playing with different jazz bands because to make a living as a jazz player anywhere mm-hmm. is really difficult. And it was very hard there. So I, I, was, making, I was making money this pop music and uh, but I, I'll never forget the day where I I quit I had two sessions and three jingles to do and I pulled up outside the studio in my nice little sports car and I and I, I sat there and I had this feeling in my body and it and it was like if I go in that studio I'm gonna die I'm going to die physically, or something will die. And I drove off, and I left them really in deep doo-doo. It was a terrible thing to do. And uh, so I became poor and happy again. And uh, but... So what
1: did you pursue at that point, poor and happy? I
2: pursued playing. I wanted to play. Uh I wanted to improvise. I wanted I was a jazz man, even though... The 60s, it's, it's complicated. I'm sorry, we're going to have to keep kind of recapitulating here, because, because I played mainly R&B in the 60s to survive. Georgie Fame with the Blue Flames, and then the band with Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce, and Graham Bond. I mean, that was some hard-hitting R&B. Mingus mm-hmm. kind of influence, you know. You remember blues and roots, and, and, sure. and, and you know Fables of Forpus with Danny Richmond. Great recordings. Great, and 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 he was a true inspiration. He was a true inspiration, um, compositionally too, mm-hmm. him and Monk. But uh, so already by 1965, I was kind of bored with the, this kind of you know classical jazz guitar tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've been listening to Train. You hear Train, all of Supreme. He's playing three notes at a time sometimes. You know, I mean, and then Eric Clapton was doing great work with John Mayle and the Blues Breakers. And then Jimmy came along and just turned everybody on their head. What he did with very little, a Marshall amp and a wah-wah pedal, unreal. Mm. And I... In some strange way, equated what Jimmy was doing with distortion with what Coltrane was doing with his horn. Mm-hmm. Musically, okay, worlds apart, but tonally very similar. And I already by with with uh, playing with Ginger and Jack, I I had to have a bigger amp because I wanted to get feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't want this cool guitar tone anymore, you know, and. Um, Anyway, as time went by, uh, I'm sure you remember Dave Holland. Sure. And Dave and I, we were kind of, when I, because I moved to Belgium in 68 to play with a free jazz group. I mean, free jazz, just like anarchy, okay? okay. Which. And you still weren't making any money? No. No, oh, okay. I was surviving, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I realized that, that free jazz was not for me because unless you're a perfect man and a perfect musician, it's a lot of Mm self-indulgence. And it doesn't work. I like discipline. And uh, so, but when I was in the UK, I was staying with Dave Holland. And Dave was in the house band at Ronnie's, one of the house bands at Ronnie's, where they would play with the great artists that would come from America, Sonny Rollins or Rason Roland Kirk. I was in another house band, but it was more jazz R&B, Hammond, and Trio. Mm-hmm. But one night, when Rossan was there, Rossan Roland Kirk, uh, Rossan liked the way we played more than the band, more than the trio that was accompanying him. So he came in early because he wanted to play with us. Wow. So he came on stage and he jammed with us, to so the great displeasure of Ronnie Scott, <laughs> you know, because his star is is playing there before he should. But uh, I'll never forget that experience. And at one point, when I I had had to solo, and Rahsaan went behind me with the three horns. I mean, it was like (laughs) a big bang right behind me. It was just, oh, what a beautiful experience. In any event, in the summer of 68, Miles walked into Ronnie's, and Dave was playing, and he hired Dave. In the meantime- Were you in the group too? Not that group, no, he was with the real jazz group, okay. you know, Chang Chang Lang, <laughs> like, you know. No, it was beautiful, Stan Tracy. And there were some great players in Britain at that time. In any event, um, while one of the times that, that I came back from, from Europe to, to staying with Dave, um, Bill Evans come into town, and Jack Gichonette was, was playing with Bill, Eddie Gomez. And Jack loved to jam, and since Dave had been in Ronnie's, he knew he knew Jack, and Jack invited us both down to have a jam at uh, in the afternoon at Ronnie Scott's. So we went down, there and we just we just jammed for a couple of hours. Um, unbeknownst to me, Jack had one of these you know old Mission Impossible tape recorders, <laughs> you know with the little reels, and he recorded it, and that's. Uh, In the meantime, Dave left to join Miles and of course uh, we uh, we had some some money, we'd call each other. And uh, and one day, I'm on the phone with him and he said, "Uh, I got somebody who wants to talk to you. And I said, oh, really? You know, I'm thinking, no, it's not Miles, that's for sure. And Tony got on the phone and he said, "Uh, hey, nice to meet you. He said, "Um, Jack Dijonette played me a jam. Of you and Dave and him, and I want you to come over and play with me. I'm in a band I'm forming, so this That's was my link. Yeah. Okay.
0: Keep listening to the Jam Session Radio Hour, would you please, on org slash radio, WLIW-FM, Southampton, New York. You're listening to an interview of Dave Schroeder with John McLaughlin.
1: Hey, I want to go back just a uh, minute uh, with Coltrane. I had heard that, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, Coltrane uh, wanted to hire Wes Montgomery for the band. Did he really? Yeah. Wow. But Wes chose not to do it because he didn't want to comp for those long solos?
2: We all know about those solos. I don't know if the gentlemen know the, the, <laughs> the story about about Coltrane and his long solos with Miles. They come off stage, I mean, on the side of the stage, and, and piano, piano solo, <clears throat> and Miles says to Train, why do you play such long solos? And Train says, well, you know, well, oh, man, it's just like, you know, I've got this this device, and I get into this device, and then I figure, oh, wow, there's another thing I can do, you know, and b- before, before I know I know what's happening, you know, I said, I'm in the middle of it. I don't know how to stop. Take the horn out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Miles, beautiful, uh, straight to the point.
1: Well, you know, let me... <laughs> <laughs> throw this on top of that. I, I, I've done a lot of interviews, and I I bet yeah, you I've, must know that story. I, I know that story. I time. wanted you <laughs> to apply, I wanted you to say. Uh, I interviewed Jimmy Heath, and he said, in the late 50s and early 60s, when modal jabs was coming around, and it's like you'd have you know 16 bars of D minor, and he says that nobody knew how to end the solo, because there was no 5-1, yeah. so yeah, they just sure. kept going. So I always thought that that might've been part of Coltrane's reason for not knowing how to stop.
2: Could be. It could be. Um, but, well, you must have listened to him many hours. Mm-hmm. And I like the way, you know, the impressions. The, the, the one, that 64, um, 63, yeah. with, with McCoy and, and, and Elvin, and how he ends that. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. How he just, he's coming out of the soul, and all of a sudden it's like he does this beautiful curve and moves ambiguously back into, into, the, into the theme. Um, but why he would play so long, I don't know. But you listen to One Up, One Down, the life of the Weiss yeah. spot. I mean, that's 27 minutes of transcendental music. He could go on forever, as far as I'm concerned. Because he captures me, when it, and, and that particular recording I don't know why they waited so long to put it out, but it's, it's, it's another level from, from, the, from the impressions mm-hmm. recording. It's unbelievable what he's playing in this. It's astonishing. And, and, and you lose track, of I lose track of time. I don't even know, I only look, I see, this is 27 minutes long, wow. For me, jazz is a way of liberation. Mm-hmm. It can be. It can be and but then you ask yourself liberation from what and the, and the answer in, for me the answer is to be, to be free from myself mm-hmm. I, I want to lose myself completely because it, and and Coltrane is a perfect example of that. and they're great players they all they've, they've they've lost themselves and they become greater as as a result so mm-hmm. the whole secret of this freedom is is, is not freedom from something other than so, so
1: describe that in yourself. How did you take these, this music and this message, bring it into your music, and so that you lost yourself?
2: I didn't. I didn't try anything. I, for me, what was important was, particularly when I started at the end of the '60s, I started doing yoga, a lot mm-hmm. of yoga and meditation, and I got the invitation from from Tony, and out of the blue, Miles hires me and and. and we start recording, I start recording with Miles and doing concerts with Miles and doing concerts and recordings with Tony. I mean, how lucky can you get? But nevertheless, I was, I was uh, very much in my life story of the of inner life story because um, by the time I arrived in New York from Europe, I was really into my yoga. I was into my meditation and so and New York is such a stimulating city, I got even deeper into it, almost out of necessity, because it's, it's very, you know, for a foreigner. For, I mean, you know, and the first night I was here, I was in Harlem, Harlem. I was in paradise. It's paradise for a, far, for a European or a Brit to be in Harlem, and that time in the 60s, mm-hmm. it was like that's, that's
0: it, you know. They could have kissed the ground. We're so happy you joined us tonight. This was such an interesting night. We're going to do part two next week. We're going to continue to do some interviews for a while while we're in this period where we can't be doing live music. We don't have a venue to do it in. Once we return to a venue, we'll be bringing you the jam. We'll, of course, be bringing you past jams. But for a while, we're going to intersperse some uh, interviews like we're doing tonight. And uh, we want to thank the NYU Steinhardt School for their wonderful series of interviews that they put on YouTube, uh, largely done by Dave Schroeder. Um, These have been produced by Joseph Vela and Ed Parada and Shake Up Productions. uh, And they were made possible by a gift from Selma Geller. We also want to thank Rafael Alvarez for his wonderful work in editing this. And in bringing some music into it, Uh, he's a fan of John McLaughlin, he's a jazz fan, he's a raconteur, Um, and he's he's a very interesting guy. I also want to thank Clay S. the music director of the Jam Session and the Jam Session Radio Hour. I'm John Landis, your host. Stay safe, stay well, good night, and we'll see you next time on the Jam Session Radio Hour.